You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to follow the advice of James Brown. Give the drummer some. You got it, man. Ah, yes. Give the drummer some. That's right. The great uh, Glenn Kochi of Wilco. And I say great because he is one of the most inventive drummers in rock today, bringing in elements of world music, jazz, improv, but all in the context of great songs. We're going to talk to Glenn about not only his work in Wilco, but his many projects outside of the band, including his latest solo release called Mobile. It's going to be an interesting conversation. We're going to use that as a jumping off point to talk about what we value in rock and roll drumming. At the end of the show, we're going to do a rare Desert Island jukebox pick, one from each of us, our favorite rock and roll drum tracks ever. Plus, we're going to review the uh, new album by Justin Timberlake shortly. But first, as always on Sound Opinions, we got some news. Stop making the eyes at me. I'll stop making the eyes at you. What it is that surprises me is that I don't really want you to. When your shoulders are frozen over your an explosion. Your name isn't real, but I don't care for sand and light. All right, Craig, those are the Arctic Monkeys, the much-hyped band that exploded out of the U.K. earlier in the year. They have just won the British music industry's highest award, the Mercury Prize. We talk about this every year when the Brits give it out because we don't have an equivalent in the United States. We have the Grammys, which tend to be old and stodgy and honor commercial achievement more than anything else. And we have the Village Voice Paz and Jop Critics Poll, which polls uh, some six or 700 rock critics across the country and around the world, really, and gets the critical consensus on what the album of the year was. If you can combine those two, America would have something. That's what the Mercury Prize is over in the UK. I think that since it started in the early 90s, it's really uh, singled out some extraordinary performers. Previous winners have included Primal Scream, Suede, Pulp, Franz Ferdinand, Antony and the Johnsons, and this year it goes to the Arctic Monkeys. Frankly, I'm a little surprised because it's it's almost the obvious choice. Yeah. You know, they were they were such a huge hype in the UK throughout the last year. You know, young, snotty, punk Dance band, you know, good times, fine. Uh, didn't set the world on fire here. Made some inroads, to be sure. But in the UK, it's like the second coming of the yeah. Young Beatles. I think they sold more records in one week in England. 360,000 copies is still a record for first week sales in England. I don't yeah. think they sold that many records in the United States total. No, fastest selling yet. chart debut in history over in, in Britain. We both liked it when we reviewed it back in the winter. And, uh, you know, again, we kind of cautioned that this is a very English sounding record. He's talking about English nightlife. It's a very specific to that country, whether or not it would translate to America. Apparently not. But, Jim, there, it needs to be said, despite the huge sales success, it was a pretty organic thing. These guys started putting their songs up on the net and created yeah. 
a buzz about themselves by basically doing it themselves and putting their songs up on the internet, giving them away. Basically, the band built its its own anticipation, built its own buzz. So from yeah. that standpoint, plus they had a great album, a lot of credit. great album yep. title. Whatever mm-hmm. people say I am, that's what I'm not. <laughs> uh, some of the other Mercury Prize shortlist winners included Muse, uh, Black Holes, and Revelations was their album. That Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan duet record that we talked about on, mm-hmm. on the show, Ballad of the Broken Seas. The editors, who I don't get, you know, yet another wannabe Smiths kind of band. The Back Room is their album, and Tom York's The Eraser. That's that's nice. Give give one to Tom. He came on the show. We <laughs> we like Tom. Plus, Scritti Politti is back. Did you see this? Yes. It's first time in 26 years. Shocking. I don't know. And, and then these uh, 19, 20 year old kids run up and steal the prize. <laughs> That is the Isley Brothers, one of their classic hits, It's Your Thing. Ronald Isley, the longtime lead singer of that band. Apparently Ronald's uh, thing has been not to pay his taxes in recent decades. That at least is the charge that has been leveled at him by the Internal Revenue Service, and a U.S. judge has agreed with them that he has sentenced Isley to three years and one month in prison for tax evasion, the maximum penalty afforded to him. Uh, 65-year-old R&B singer suffering from a recent bout with kidney cancer, Complications from a stroke. Nonetheless, a U.S. district judge in Los Angeles has sentenced him to prison for a tax evasion. He owes $3.1 million in back taxes, according to the IRS. And basically, there was no mercy for uh, Ronald Isley in court. I mean, they basically sent him, sentenced yeah. him to the full slate. There was no the leniency at, at all here. They threw the book at him. The prosecutor said that he was, a, quote, a serial tax avoider. And granted, there's some fishy stuff here. He declared bankruptcy at the same time that he owned a couple of mansions and a few yachts. <laughs> you know? But now he's been selling all that stuff and trying to pay off. I just don't understand this country. Now, Greg, you know, far be it from me to invite perhaps the uh, the scrutiny of the IRS to the Sound Opinions Incorporated account. We don't want that. We pay our taxes because we don't make any money, right? <laughs> but, but, I mean, this guy's going to jail. For 37 months, he's one of the, the greatest stars in rock history, in R&B history in this yeah. country. One of the few bands, the Isley Brothers, that have had hits on the charts, no, number one hits in every decade. Six, of de- rock six decades. Yeah, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the new millennium, they yeah. had a hit in every decade, and which is still a incredible. And there's uh, still a vital act. I mean, you know, now Ron has been calling himself Mr. Biggs lately and hanging out with R. Kelly, the R&B star from Chicago who is under indictment on uh, several dozen counts of making child pornography. His case has been dragging on for more than four years. I mean, when they threw the book at Ron, I mean, I don't understand. He didn't pay his taxes. You caught him, he's going to pay them. He's going to yeah. pay stiff fines. He's sick. He's apparently uh, making an effort, liquidating assets to pay off this debt. It Selling the seem, furs. <laughs> you know, y- you got to wonder, if this was somebody Just, like Bruce Springsteen, would they be putting him in jail? That doesn't seem right to me. Very bothersome. And I'm going to make your head bop to this. And at the end, you're going to rock to this. Now say my name. Come on. The D, the I, the D, the D, the Y, the D, the I, the D is Diddy. The whole is Diddy. Ah, yes. That is the genius known as Sean Combs, the rapper that you can also call Puff Daddy. Puffy, P. Diddy, or just Diddy. But you cannot call him Diddy in the UK anymore. 
<laughs> this is an absurd story. Apparently, oh, there's a, a British producer by the name of Richard Diddy Dearlove, and he's been known <laughs> under that name since 1992. He sued Sean Combs and said, people are confusing your Diddy with my Diddy. <laughs> and Combs had to pay him 110,000 pounds to settle out of court and give up the right to use the name Diddy anymore in England. I mean, he can still be Diddy here in, in America. But uh, you can't be Diddy no more <laughs> in, in England. Oh, my God. This guy, Dear Love, had only one significant hit in the U.K. back in 1997, a song called Give Me Love. And that was like number 23 on the pop chart. seems to me this guy's about as relevant in the U.K. as Diddy is in the U.S. these days. I mean, you know, when, when was the last time Diddy <laughs> did anything that, you know, was a major, major chart success? Ah, but he's a fashion mogul, Greg. Justin Timberlake, his second solo release is out. It's called Future Sex Love Sounds. Uh, most of it is produced by the producer Timbaland, Tim Mosley, who we've been talking a lot about in the show. So uh, you give me crap for dropping Brian Eno's name, but I yeah. think you dropped Timberland's name more than that. Uh, it's unavoidable. Huge hits with Missy Elliott, has had a major hit this summer with Promiscuous the Nelly Furtado song, mm-hmm. now working with uh, Timberlake on a record that is bound to be one of the biggest records of the fall. His last solo record, the first of his career, his previous solo record, his solo debut, Justified, in 2002, sold more than 3 million copies. That followed up Timberlake's career in that other vocal group that he was some, in. Some In-Sync. little band he had in uh, high school, yes, instead per- of high school. Perhaps you heard of them. Uh, sync. Uh, basically, Timberlake was in that band when he was about 14 years old out of Florida. They ended up selling a ridiculous number of records, something to the tune of 30 million. So by the time <laughs> oh, Justin man. Timberlake was 21 years old... He had already sold about 30 million records, has gone on to a solo career that has essentially tried to distance himself from that teen pop generation that he came up with in the late 90s. More sophisticated R&B, a lot of comparisons to uh, Michael Jackson's Off the Wall record back when Michael Jackson was Michael Jackson, was one of the coolest performers on the planet. And, of course, the other Jackson connection is he did the uh, famous Super Bowl show with yes. Janet Jackson, and he was the man who removed and, and or caused <laughs> the wardrobe malfunction. The yes. wardrobe malfunction. Nipplegate, yes. Justin Timberlake, one of the co-conspirators in that uh, Super Bowl controversy. He was sort of the G. Gordon Liddy of Nipplegate. <laughs> Well, you know, he's nonetheless managed to live that down. I don't know how he did it, but uh, he is now out on a tour. 
in which he is touring with a, a, a large band. He's wearing the suits and ties, the derbies. He's got this you know, kind of 1940s yeah. uh, Sinatra gangster thing happening, a 12-piece band that's yeah. all live horns mm-hmm. and live drums, percussion. I it's am, uh, I am stuff. I am not a teen pop idol anymore. I am I am growing into this role as this well, uh, he's, he's, R&B sex pot. You he's know? bringing sexy back. Yes, he is. That that's... was probably the first <laughs> single that most people have already heard. It's already ubiquitous. Uh, what we heard on the way in was My Love. That's the second single from the album following Sexy Back. Uh, there's a lot of diversity on this album. We could go in any number of directions, but the one both you and I agreed on, Greg, to play is called Love Stone slash I Think She Knows. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Timberlake from his second solo album, Future Six, Love Sounds. It is a concept album. He is trying to sketch the dichotomy between sex and love. So you have future sex songs and you have love sound songs. And every song on this album fits that concept except for one, which is actually the only bad song on the album. Losing My Way is uh, the sad story of a life ruined by crystal meth addiction. I don't yeah, know where you know, I don't know where that's coming down. Whatever. Timberlake is an interesting talent. I mean, he's ambitious. Clearly, this guy has been basically from birth a product of the pop superstar making machine. Mm-hmm. And you have the best names that money can buy appearing on this album. In addition to working with Timberland, he's working with Rick Rubin. He's working with Will I Am of the Black Eyed Peas. We get cameos from Three Six Mafia and Ti. But the spotlight's always on him and. He's not a great vocalist. I don't find him to be the like most handsome guy in the world. He's got this weird Marine Corps buzz cut <laughs> now. But nonetheless, he's bringing sexy back, surely on the strength of, of charisma. The guy is a, is a really charismatic performer, and he puts over these songs. I think the only p- person in pop or R&B today who is any competition in terms of uh, chart-topping and units moved is Usher. And I don't think Usher is nearly as interesting or ambitious an artist. Uh, Usher was really disappointing when I saw him live. 
live. You know, Timberlake's out there fronting an 11-piece band, doing it live, showing some guts, and showing a lot of range on this album. You, you get the pumping club jams, and you you got hip-hop-tinged R&B, and you've got, you know, straight-up pop, and you've got these sensual slow jams. Uh, and everything, like I said, except for the Crystal Meth song, is is pretty much a winner. Yeah, I think, you know, you, you made the Usher comparison. Usher's a much better dancer. He's well, kind of awkward. He's got, better, be he's got better moves than either you or I. Oh, well, that's not saying much, I though. can't do that backward thing. But uh, I give Timberlake major credit for the adventurousness on this record. There's not a lot of conventional-styled hooks on this record. In fact, the hooks are kind of buried in it a little bit, you know? The, the melodies are sort of tucked inside these really adventurous arrangements. It's sort of that sci-fi soundscaping meets old-school R&B and soul. Yeah, that's the future sex part of it, and the right. old-school part is the love sound. And it's interesting, the arc of the sound of the record, where it starts off with kind of this futuristic vibe, and you, you hear this kind of very brittle, almost a cyberspace kind of production early on in the record, and it gets slowly more conservative as, mm-hmm. it, as it nears the end of the record, where you have that Will I Am production, which sounds almost like a Motownish type of demo track. It has a nice uh, sample from an old J.C. Davis record mm. on it, and then there's a Rick Rue track, which is kind of the most straightforward. I mean, it is a straight... It, it could have fit on a Donny Hathaway record in the, yeah, in the early yeah. 70s. It is a straight-up 70s soul ballad. And, you know, Timberlake, to his credit, pulls it off. You're right. The Bob track is absolutely horrendous. I call it the Bob track because Bob is the crack addict who is referenced in the song. <laughs> Here are the opening lines, folks. No, meth. Meth. Yes. Bob the meth head. Yes. Hi, my name is Bob, and I work at my job. I make 40-some <laughs> dollars a day. I'm sorry... That doesn't sound too credible coming from a former Mouseketeer, Justin. So, yeah. you know, stay away from the social commentary. When you're talking about the bedroom, you seem to know what you're talking about. Now, there, Stick some, to that area. Know, there's some howlers here. You know, yeah. he goes from Casanova to Supernova. Yeah. I mean, but still, the guy is charismatic. It, it really is impossible to dislike him. On the patented sound opinions rating system of buy it, burn it, or trash it, I would call this a buy it, except there's probably no reason for you to buy it. You're going to hear it nonstop oh yeah. for the next year everywhere. But it's a good record. It's a, it's a keeper, except for that one track. It's a good R&B record, and uh, I would say it's not a great one, but it's de- I would say it's, it's worth buying. I mean, if, if you happen to have an sync record or your kid does, oh. pull that out, listen to that, and look at the growth that this guy has made yeah. in that six, seven years. And I think it's, I think it's a sign of a guy who has a has a chance to have a really good long-standing career based on artistic merit no, they, they, rather than, cele- uh, you know, I'm married to Cameron Diaz and I'm a celebrity. absolutely a superstar. There's no two ways about it. I don't think you've seen somebody come from that kind of child star beginning I- into his own so effectively since Michael Jackson, right. which is the other point of comparison. Right. It's good to have Michael Jackson back. Too bad it's, his name is Justin Timberlake. It's good to have that quality coming back into the pop mainstream. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to be right back. We're going to give the drummer some, Mr. Glenn Kochi, with performance and a chat.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cotta of the Chicago Tribune. My partner is Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times, and we're here with Glenn Kochi. Glenn studied classical percussion at the University of Kentucky. Prior to that, he was in various marching bands at the high school level, has gone on to have a career that essentially started moving into a, uh, a more of a mainstream level with Paul Kay and the Weathermen, a pretty impressive singer-songwriter out of Kentucky, uh, has gone on to do solo projects with Darren Gray, a avant-garde artist out of western Illinois in a band called On Fillmore. He's played in a band called Loose Fur with Jim O'Rourke and Wilco's Jeff Tweedy. And last but not least, he is in the rock band Wilco. And Wilco has more of a following now of people who just come to watch Glenn play the drums. Because no one quite plays the drums like Glenn Kochi. That, that's it. He's scoffing over there because Glenn is a yeah, modest man. I really don't think that's true. But it, it is true, Glenn. I mean, you know, both Glenn and I, Greg, are columnists for Modern Drummer that's magazine. That's true. And I had done a big profile of Glenn for Modern Drummer. And then they completely usurped me and they hired him as a columnist because they were so fascinated by these instruments that he, he makes by hand and some of the techniques he brings in from the avant-garde world into a rock and pop spectrum. Right. I, I was telling Greg, I think in the drum community now, there is this point where, where it, people are turning to you as an innovator, you know, the stuff that you're doing. Uh, a great technician, but also a man with great taste. You do these incredible things that we could get all very muso, you know, musicology, <laughs> you know. But it's always in the service of the song. So what we thought we'd do is have you play some stuff from your, your solo album and then talk a little bit about the things you're doing because they are very innovative. And then we want to end it with a kind of philosophical discussion on rock drumming in general. You know, what works and what doesn't, and what is good rock drumming? Because you have some great thoughts on that. Okay. So uh, <laughs> but why don't we start with, why don't we just have you play some? Can I start with the monkey chant? Of course. Feel free to get up and walk around if you want. It's long. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right, monkey chant. This is from Glenn Kochi's latest solo record called Mobile.
That was great, Glenn. What the listeners have just heard is an edited version of Monkey Chant, which is this epic centerpiece of your new album, Mobile. If people want to hear the entire piece that you just played, go to uh, soundopinions.org, where you not only will be able to hear it, but also to see it. We've and that, that's a big part it. of the fun. Yeah, You have absolutely. to watch Glenn playing with the little boxes of crickets, which we'll get to in a minute, and all the various and sundry percussion in that piece. So, Glenn, why don't you take us around the kit, uh, both traditional and very non-traditional percussion, as Jeff Tweedy has has tagged some of them as inglensions. Inglensions, um, yes. So uh, <laughs> get, give us a, a primer here on the Kochi kit. Yeah, why don't we start on the left with the Crotales? I've always been obsessed with them, and uh, yeah, so I... I finally got, tuned, got a set but yeah. not cymbals but they're little tuned metal discs right they're made out of cymbal alloy and that's what the high-pitched bell tone very nice yeah then and those, a, a, i use those with wilco all the time and all my bands and uh and a xylophone yeah uh glockenspiel, glockenspiel. Or, or orchestra bells right beneath that and then my electronics i have contact mics going on all the drums and a lot of the effects, basically, so I can get these small sounds that wouldn't be audible. They get amplified so they can compete with the sound of the drums. And I also run those through different electronics. Like, you know, I've always figured if guitarists and bass players, keyboardists get to use all these cool effects and distortion and and different sounds, why can't we? So that's what this is. What was that little thing you were playing at one point that looks like one of those umbrellas you get in a fancy tiki drink? Oh, that's a (laughs) Super Bowl mallet. Oh, half so of a Super Bowl. Half of a, a Super stick. Bowl stuck on a stick, and, and they get great moans on the drums when you rub them across. <laughs> Sound great on ductwork, piano strings. In fact, uh, beginning of Trying to Break Your Heart, it's also these on piano strings. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. You've detourned your snare drum. Talk about that. Yeah, it's a prepared snare drum, so it's the same idea as like a John Cage prepared piano, where I'm actually affixing different springs and wires and fishing line and sticks through the drum head. These drum heads I use, these Evans drum heads, come pre-drilled. They have venting holes, so I just put these things through them, and the drum acts as a normal drum. I can hit it or as a resonator for all these things. So I've got small springs on there, which sound like this. Larger springs, uh, little friction sticks, um, kawika sticks, uh, lion roar type of instrument, based on the classical instruments. So all these different sounds, and then of course you can, you know, play with the contact mics themselves. That's great. And that's what uh, is such a big part of the monkey chant, because each of these different sounds represents one of the main, the five main characters and the Hyatt also in the story of the Ramayana, which it set the Hindu epic story. At the beginning of that piece were those crickets. And people right. are being deprived by not being able to see this because you have over there about 30 boxes, little boxes, about yes. the size of a jewelry box. I think it's important to tell people that no crickets were injured or killed in the making of this. Yes, piece anyone of music, from right? PETA listening, these yeah. are fake crickets. These are little, yeah. just little souvenir kind of uh, junky little tourist things from Chinatown. But it's just a little box, and, and it's little fake crickets in them that make a chirping noise. Wow. Are they so, all the same? I originally got them just because I love the rhythms that they made when you put a few of them together. Mm-hmm. They go in and out of phase with each yeah. other. Um, 
and that's just something I love to geek out on. But uh, <laughs> when I was doing the, the monkey chant, all these recordings that I was researching were, were recorded at dusk out, mm-hmm. you know, field recordings out in Bali, and you hear all of these crickets and locusts on the recordings. There's all these cricket sounds coming through. Mm. So for me, it was like, oh, I can actually use these now. And, mm-hmm. and um, so kind of paying homage to those recordings, I, I put them on. One of the things that Glenn was telling me before you got here, Greg, he was setting up, is uh, what is that round, circular, silver instrument? Hit that, Glenn. Oh. <laughs> going to get me in trouble. Glenn's wife is a lovely and long-suffering woman. <laughs> and that, Greg, is her fruit basket. Wow. They got it as a wedding present. <laughs> yeah, that was a wedding present. Oh. Nothing escapes his grasp. Nothing is safe. Yep. And, you know, she since put a moratorium on me grabbing anything out of the kitchen. But, Lock uh, all your drawers and closets because, who knows, Glenn Kochi may turn it I'm, into a percussion uh, <laughs> instrument. I'm amazing I found it, too, because it's like it's, it doesn't sound that great, but when you hang it from a contact mic, it sounds... Like a gong, except it's a lot easier to transport. There you go. Yeah. The other thing that I think is interesting about what you're doing, Glenn, you know, I once interviewed Tony Williams, uh, the great uh, drummer in yeah. Miles Davis's quintet in the 60s, and I asked him about his approach to drumming, and he said, you know, I always thought of the drums as a melodic instrument. Everybody thinks of it as a rhythm instrument, but I always approach the drums as a melodic instrument. And it seems to me that's the approach you're using as well. Yeah, or just not even a melodic instrument, but just, you know, it can be anything. Mm -hmm. It can be, you know, sometimes I like to think like, is this drum part, treat it like a keyboard part or a bass part or something like that. You know, it's just got, there's so many different sounds, so many things to do on it. You can treat it a lot more than a rhythm instrument. But yeah, that's the same idea. Why don't you give us another piece, you know, something um, that illustrates maybe the more concise aspect of the Kochi (laughs) solo stuff. (laughs) Okay, um, let's see. This is... Uh, I'll play Projections of What Might, which is a, a, a tune on mobile also. And this was inspired by two of my favorite percussionists, kind of unsung heroes, Ed Blackwell, jazz legend, and uh, Tony Allen, one of the fathers of Afrobeat, Fela's mm. band leader for mm-hmm. years, Nigerian master musician. So um, I was just really intrigued by some of their grooves and wrote them down and then kind of rearranged them for myself and, and put them in a formal structure and then enhanced them electronically. And when I do this live, it's kind of basically like a, a trio. I'm playing one part live and then combined with these two electronically enhanced versions of Tony Alan and Ed Black. So did you sample so, those from the recordings? I didn't sample them. No, I wrote out the beats and then played them on kit and then just arranged them a little bit differently. So wow. orchestrated so, so, them differently. So as if a singer was singing a Beatles part and recording him or herself and then augmenting it later. You, you um, played yeah. these drummers' parts. and Yeah, uh, and, changed them around a little bit, yeah. added some things, and then enhanced them electronically. So really yeah. what we're going to get is, is three coaches on top of each other. Yes, Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a horrible image.
was that was a ding. That was uh, multiple <laughs> multiple coaches we heard there. And that reminds me a little bit, Glenn, we were talking about this earlier. Um, I'm trying to break your heart, that particular track, where I think there was probably like four, three or four different percussion parts in that yeah. song, right, that are sort of being interwoven. That particular song was more of a straight-ahead, simple folk song, and we were trying to take it out of that realm and just adding all sorts of layers, and it went through a lot of different incarnations, um, even before I joined the band and then after I joined many more. So I had, you know... Crazy drum parts, traditional drum parts, um, vibraphone and crotali parts, parts where I was just playing floor tiles. And then when it came to mixing it, um, parts, since it's... Parts where I was just playing floor tiles. Yeah. We, have, we, yeah. Can, we can't not let that go <laughs> yeah. remarked upon. Sorry, this is not a man. standard drum instrument, Glenn. I have a big target on my forehead. <laughs> you, you, brought in, uh, you brought in a box of tiles and... Yeah, yeah, different ceramic tiles, because they get different tones. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, you know, like, uh, <laughs> they even make slate, slate uh, marimbas now. Here is a, uh, a rock band, Wilco. The first song on its most popular record has these layers of percussion, including floor tiles on them, the crotales. I mean, these are not the kind of sounds you hear on 99.5% of the rock records being made now or, <laughs> or ever in a lot of ways. I mean, it's, it, it is kind of a new territory. Obviously, the, your bandmates are pretty tolerant and, and not only that, but welcoming of this kind of thing, it seems like. This is welcomed as a good thing as opposed to more straight-ahead rock drumming. Yeah, uh, lucky for me, yeah. I think, you know, Wilco at that point was going in that direction anyway, and that's why, you know, I had started to play with Jeff and Lucifer, had, you know, did the Chelsea Wall soundtrack with him, and he was wanting to expand the sound of the band, and and that's why he brought me in, because they were already going in that direction. At the same time, though, you have the ability to be very straight ahead. I'm thinking, what's what's the name of the Krautrot song on uh, Spiders? Spiders on A Ghost Is Born, Glenn. You're you're playing a very straight ahead, rhythmic groove for more than ten minutes, and it, it, it's pretty unvarying. You know, that's what the song calls for, and that's a big yeah. thing that I learned from um, Maureen Tucker, which is where I got this cocktail floor tom idea from too, because she used to use that with the Velvet Underground. Paul Kane, the Weatherman, which you mentioned, she produced our record Love is a Gas right after I got out of college. And so it was a great balance for me after having this kind of academic, drummer-oriented college experience where I could easily tend to overplay and then hanging out with Maureen for a couple weeks. It really put everything in perspective because she's someone who, you know, I don't even know if she can do a drum roll, but she plays perfectly for all the Velvet Underground stuff. Just You know, a song like Heroin would be ruined if it was any other drummer on there you know that that right. beat makes the song but i'm gonna try for the kingdom if i can because it makes me feel like i'm a man when i put a spike into my vein and i tell you things aren't quite the same on my run and I feel just like Jesus' son and I guess that I just don't know and I 
you, that's a great point because Maureen Tucker uh, would say that she listened a lot to the lyrics and she was mm-hmm. trying to play the lyrics. You know, when Lou Reed was talking about the rush of the heroin trip, speeding up, slowing down, sort right. of following along with the story and telling the story with the percussion instrument. Right. Do you study the lyrics before you go in there and play a percussion part on a Wilco song, or how does that work? In general, yes, I'll definitely check out the lyrics. Sometimes the lyrics aren't finished when we actually track the song, so that's not always the case. But in general, I, especially the way we recorded A Ghost is Born, where he was actually singing in the same room I was recording. We were all set up live, and that's how we're recording right now. Um, you know, he's sitting three feet, four feet in front of me singing while we're playing. So I like to phrase a lot off of the lyrics too. Um, not, or not just the lyrics, the way he sings mm-hmm. um, to help keep time, let the song breathe. You know, we don't really use click tracks, stuff like that. So the way that he's singing a line and what kind of emphasis and how he's drawing that out, I kind of play around that, the phrasing of the vocals a lot. <laughs> Well, this might be a good segue since we were talking about Maureen Tucker. Uh, I remember sitting in at Metro in the balcony and us watching the White Stripes. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, Meg White from the White Stripes gets a tremendous amount of guff for being a very primitive and minimal drummer. So what is good rock drumming, Glenn? I mean, a lot of people are turning to you now and looking at you as a paradigm for, wow, this is a guy who's taking the rock drum set to, a, to new places. And yet uh, that's not it's not all about showmanship as far as you're concerned or flesh no, or technique. No, in rock drumming, far from it. Yeah, I think it's about serving the song, which is what Maureen Tucker did, which is what, you know, Meg White and I really love uh, Elliot Smith's drumming on his records just because Mm -hmm. and a lot of times when when the the songwriter or the singer ends up playing the drum parts on the record, too, it's always the perfect drum part. It's Mm. no perfect. Um, LeVon Helm, he's a great example because Ah. he sings a lot. There's not one note I would change on any of those records it's perfect Mm -hmm. everything he plays is perfect because he's singing the song in his head when he's not or you know in the microphone even half the time um he's thinking about the song and everything that he does helps support the song uh and a lot of times the songwriter when they play drums it's a perfect example of that you know maybe it's uncomfortable for you to get into this area but what what would be some examples of of yeah, bad of things drumming. where guys are just uh, overplaying, or obviously they're very skilled drummers, but they just don't, they overplay. Oh, I don't know, because, he, I mean, if you think <laughs> of someone like, you know, a classic person who, who's overplaying would be Keith Moon, but it's ideal for the Who, you know, that's what gave them their sound, you know, he's mm. he's playing all over the place, but it's perfect. That's just what the music called for. He's still playing for the song, even though he's playing a million notes. How about Carter um, Burford in Dave Matthews Band? What, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't want to be on, talking gotta, about this, people on This is a rock critic air. show. No. It's a rock critic show. Glenn. I'm not a rock critic. Got to be a drummer you hate out there. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to gracefully <laughs> bow out of that question. But but so All right. you know, I guess what we're trying to do, do is get at a key because because you know with Moon, you said that's that's cool because. In a lot of ways, he's the lead instrument on a lot of those songs, right? Um, and he's not serving anyone except just plowing out front of everything, and Townsend arranged the songs around him. Mm-hmm. 
But you're saying that's not necessarily wrong. I mean, no, not at so all. So is there like an overriding theory here? It's just like you know how you have to take each guy by its. There can be busy drummers. There can be incredibly minimalist drummers, and you can like them all depending on how they fit into the particular song or the particular arrangement. Right. There's not a, a specific role that all drummers should play. The music, every you know, every band sounds different. Well. There's a lot of different types of music, and uh, as long as the drums are serving the percussion, serving the song, it, it may be in different roles. It may be as a timekeeper. It may be as a basher. It may be as, you know, playing more experimental things. There's lots of different ways the drums can serve the song. Glenn, it's been a pleasure having you in. Glenn Kochi, rock drummer in Wilco, and numerous side projects. Visually, one of the most interesting sets we've ever seen. Th- thanks for having me. I mean, you guys have just given more exposure to the solo uh drum set performance than has probably ever been had. So. <laughs> and, and people can hear the entire track, all of the tracks that you played on the web, plus some extra bonus material. And uh, if we get our, our video going, they can see you playing. It's going to be cool. Great. So that's soundopinions.org. Thanks again. Thank you. There's more to come on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to have a rare treat, a double Desert Island jukebox pick in which Jim and I spotlight our favorite drumming tracks of all time. That's next on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We just heard Glenn Kochi talking about his favorite drummers of all time. And Jim, now it's our turn. Uh, We are going to the Desert Island, and each of us are going to pick out one Desert Island jukebox track apiece that highlights great drumming. You ask 9 out of 10 drummers about who the ultimate rock drummer ever was. It's John Bonham of Led Zeppelin. The guy had this amazing power. He played harder and heavier than almost anybody in rock history, and yet he was incredibly fluid and subtle and dexterous. There's always a very soulful groove happening, you know? You would not expect somebody to have the, the kind of soulful subtleness, like, like a tap dancer, but he's wearing two cinder blocks on his feet, you know? <laughs> it, it's the two things that don't go together, and that's why drummers love him so very much. There's a couple of ways I could have gone with this. You know, when the levee breaks, 
the drum track he he played on that is uh, is generally considered, I think, one of his best. It's a weird kind of feel to it, and it, and it's very heavy, but at the same time very kind of precarious. Not going there. The Crunge is an interesting track because he moves. Uh, effortlessly in the space of a couple of bars at a time from 4-4 to 9-8 to 5-8, all this very technical musical stuff. But, you know, you never get any sense of him other than just moving right forward. It's very complicated, but it sounds so simple. I think rock and roll drumming is non-obtrusive. It never says, I am the star. For that reason, I'm not going with Bonham's famous solo, Moby Dick. Rock drumming should almost not be noticed, except if you take it out, the whole thing falls apart. Right. It is the foundation. Uh, to me, Dancing Days from Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy is the quintessential Bonham track. And it's very, very simple. It's just this kind of powerful, fluid groove. One of the, the neat things about the original album version, if you listen very, very closely, you can hear him stepping on his bass drum pedal so hard you hear the bass drum pedal squeaking <laughs> as he hits. Mercy! And it's typical of what Bonham would do. Uh, we had John Paul Jones, the Zeppelin's bass player, on the show a couple of times. And one of the things that Jones always talked about was, you know, people are uh, for 30 years now have been asking him how did you get those sounds? And Jones said he once saw his partner, Bonzo, sit down and bang on his drum cases, the cardboard cases that were used to carry the instrument and it still sounded like Bonham <laughs> as if he was playing you know a fully mic'd and amplified drum kit inherent in the guy's limbs that's mm-hmm. the way it came out um, what you have here is that kind of power and that kind of straightforwardness there's this a typical Jimmy Page uh, guitar riff and Bonham just kind of uh, you know wraps his drums around that riff and he was always very musical always following what was happening in either the vocal line or or the, the guitar line, and it, it's just an amazing and yet simple, not one of the flashiest ones, just him laying down the backbeat. Dancing Days from Led Zeppelin would be my pick for the best rock Desert Island jukebox drum track ever. <laughs> Now, Greg, I want you to listen to this coming up, because this is the genius of Bonham, right? I'm listening. Listen to this part. That, that, right? 
After every line that Plant sings, Bonham takes the drum part and turns it inside out. Now the main part, this thing, that's really easy. Yeah. I could teach you how to do that in about an hour. Okay? That's all <laughs> I don't think basic so, rock yeah, drumming. No, 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 it's I true. Agree, yeah. If you can walk and chew gum, you can you can do it. But it's the other part, this part. Alright, where he turns the, the beat inside out to punctuate the, the both the guitar and the vocal. The vocal, yeah. Took me four or five years. Well, I, I to be truthful, I still can't do it. <laughs> I mean Glenn Kochi can, but I mean, that's what's amazing. The guy's just turning the drums inside out. Well, people think of him as such a basher, but then you realize, listening to that, that he's listening to what the music is saying and oh, responding yeah, to absolutely. it. Absolutely. I love it, Jim. That, that's good stuff. I want to hear what you got, Mr. Codd. As a non-drummer, I'm interested in, the, in, in drumming that comes from a totally different side of the planet. Um, we've talked heavily about rock drummers here on the show, but I've always been a big fan of soul and R&B and funk drumming, uh, specifically people like Earl Palmer who played on uh, with Aretha Franklin, Little Richard, people like that, Roger Hawkins, the Muscle Shoals rhythm mm-hmm. section. I love Benny Benjamin's work on the, all those great Motown singles. Imagine those songs that Motown produced without Benny Benjamin's drumming on them or the Stax singles without Al Jackson's drumming on them. I think they totally defined what those records sound like. And for that matter, James Brown. Where would James be without his drummers? I mean, we started off this show sort of laughing about it, but that's the most famous line, you know, from James yeah, Brown. Give the drummer give some. Give the drummer some. And I'm going to play the song where he, in fact, says, give the drummer some. In fact, he says it about six times. Yeah. Uh, it's in the middle of a break uh, in the uh, song called Cold Sweat from 1967. And to my mind, you can divide James Brown's career very neatly between pre-Cold Sweat and post-Cold Sweat. At that point, he decided in his career, chord changes, who needs these stinking chord <laughs> yeah, changes? what's the point? We don't need any stinking we'll chord changes. ride the groove. Ride the groove. It was all about the groove. And he turned basically every instrument in his band into a version of a drum. The horn sounded like drums. They were really mm-hmm. jabbing. The guitar had that chicken scratch thing with, with Jimmy Nolan. Even James Brown's voice sounded like a drum. It was very kind of rhythmic as opposed to melodic. And then it came right down to that core group, the rhythm section, the bass guitar, and the drummer. And the drummer on Cold Sweat was Clyde Stubblefield, um, perhaps the single most sampled drummer in music history. Yeah. And I think it all starts here with Cold Sweat. In the middle of the track, this is where James Brown uh, figures out the vamp. He, he basically <laughs> yeah. stretched these songs, literally telling his musicians in the studio how to play, when to play, and they were so good at what they were doing. These were jazz-schooled musicians that they were able to respond to James Brown's commands on the fly and give him exactly what he wanted. And here he stripped all the music back, and he said, give the drummer some. Clyde Stubblefield responds with what is essentially a drum solo. I think it's one of the first and maybe the only drum solo that you can actually dance to. I think that's what it's all about here. He's still keeping that groove. He's popping the, the time on the ride cymbal. He's got this incredible tom sound going. You can hear the pop of the kick drum, keeping that tempo going, mm-hmm. keeping the groove going. Imagine this as the bed of a, a thousand hip-hop songs, and it yeah. literally is. And then the song comes back in. James doing Cold Sweat again. But meanwhile, you hear that song stripped down to its essence, and it is the drum of Clyde Stubblefield. Here it is, Cold Sweat, part two on Sound Pains.
James Brown Cold Sweat. Man, it's a good one, Greg. Next week, Jim, we've got uh, some more great music for you. Uh, we were out in force at the Touch and Go 25th anniversary celebration. Touch and Go, the venerated independent label based out of Chicago that has made a worldwide impact. We're going to talk about that label, why it's so important. It's a story well worth telling. Plus, we're going to have reviews of the new albums by Lupe Fiasco, Mr. Kick Push, yes. and Yola Tango. Tori Malatia is, as always, our executive producer and keeper of the Southside Flame. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fingerspiegel is our producer. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers and backing vocalists. Dino Armiros gives us legal help. Joe Dassault gives us technical assistance. We had some help from Dan Dietrich with Glenn Kochi. And Jim Russell at American Public Media is bringing sexy back. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>